0: This is the Monday, July twenty-fifth, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
1: How I miss
0: those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor, where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our Wayback Machine embarks on an epic tale with Hildegard Mahoney, author of the memoir, Journey Interrupted, A Family Without a Country in a World at War. In the spring of 1941, seven-year-old Hilly and her family left home in New York City and set off for their native Germany. They planned to take the scenic route and avoid Hitler's wolf packs in the Atlantic Ocean. They'd go across the United States, then the Pacific, and all of Eurasia via the Trans-Siberian Railway. But when Hitler betrayed his alliance with Stalin and invaded the Soviet Union, the family found themselves stranded in Yokohama, Japan. They thought about going back to the U.S., but then Admiral Yamamoto launched his surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, leaving Hilly's family trapped for six long years in a nation at war with the one she called home, and unable to reach the one where she'd been born. Journey Interrupted is a story of global scope in the war, but it's also a tale of adapting to the hazards of fate and finding salvation in family. And as Hilly's father often said, learning to cross the next bridge when you come to it. A woman who has worn many hats in her life Today, Hildegard Mahoney is the chairman of the Harvard Mahoney Neuroscience Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. They do amazing work on the brain. You might wanna check them out and sign up for their free email newsletter. That comes out quarterly, so it's not like it's a lot of spam. You may also remember her as Miss Reingold, 1956.
0: Manhattan cast 16,000 votes for the girl from Scranton. Richmond, 18,000 votes for California. Queens, 20,000 for Texas. Brooklyn, 50,000 votes for Brooklyn. Yes, this is election month, the largest citywide election in the U.S.A. Yes, sir. Through these ballot boxes, pass the most beautiful votes in the world. Who'll be the winner? Why, Miss Rheingold, of course. Here are the six lovely contestants, just as they appear in the current Rheingold advertisements, showing all six girls, so you can pick your favorite.
2: Yes, that's right. Lovers of Rheingold beer, which was synonymous with post-war New York, and the kind of thing that Captain America, Steve Rogers, would have drank back in Brooklyn, they elected her as their champion, and she toured the country. As I said, She has a really amazing and varied story to tell. For more gems like this, let's meet Hildegard Mahoney and tag along on her, Journey Interrupted. I'm joined on the line by Hildegard Mahoney, author of Journey Interrupted, a family without a country in a world at war. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show today.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
2: I said that the highest compliment somebody can pay a person who writes a memoir is, I feel as if I know you. So when you just called in now to the show, I felt as if this was hearing from an old friend. This is an amazing story. I feel as if I knew you and your parents and your two brothers. Your parents were amazing people in this period. They planned this six or seven week journey They don't want to go across the Atlantic because of all that's going on in the war at the time. So they plan a trip from New York to the West Coast, across the Pacific, and across Russia to Germany. It's one thing to read in Journey Interrupted that the trip ended up taking almost a decade. It sounds very casual. Okay, it took nine years. But for you and your brothers, Eno is 10 and Alexander is four at the time. Right. And these are not just any years of your life. If you're four and then you're 14, if you're 10 and then you're 20, (laughs) you're a girl of only seven at the time. And then you return home, you're 17, you're becoming a woman. So how did this unique childhood, losing so many years, impact you all as you grew into
1: adulthood? Well, it's hard for me to say how it impacted my parents, except obviously they were very stressful years, but they were so good about protecting us that we children just, you know, went to school, did what we had to do, did our homework, played with our friends. And then, of course, when we were sent up into the mountains, into the freezing mountains that winter of 1944, that was an experience that obviously didn't hurt us in the long run, but was not something that I'd like to do again. And then to come home, it's interesting, because I think the way you might say it impacted us is we grew up very quickly. We grew up in a hurry. We didn't have really a childhood.
2: You take a trip in life, I guess, and that's something that really occurred to me reading Journey Interrupted, is you never know where it's going to take you. Here, it's 1941. You board the 20th Century Limited train for Chicago. You pack for the trip, or your mother does, 40 pieces of luggage. For everybody who's ever been given a hard time for overpacking, (laughs) describe the contents of these cases and how valuable they became. Because as I read the story of your mother preparing for the trip, I thought the Boy Scout motto of be prepared really applies to her because you end up stranded in Japan. So what did you bring along with you?
1: Well, for one, there was a family of five, and my mother had taken – obviously summer clothes. But then since we were going to go through Siberia, and Siberia can be even cold in the summertime, she brought warmer clothes. So we had, let's say we each had two suitcases. That's 20 right there. But then she knew that we were going to go through so many different countries. She didn't know whether we could get Kleenex or toilet paper or peanut butter or anything to eat that we were used to having. And she just really decided it would be best to take as much food along as possible because this trip was going to go across America, which was no problem. But once we got on the ship, it was a Japanese ship. We didn't know what kind of food we'd get. Then when we got to Yokohama, we were supposed to go on to Busan, Korea, and then up to Manchuria and, and on to the Trans-Siberian Railroad. That was going to take quite a few, I think it was 10 days or so that it we was supposed to take. And then going into Moscow, Berlin, and then ultimately Hamburg, that was sort of a long trip. And she had no idea what we'd be given to eat. So she gave us what she knew we children liked. So we would at least eat and wouldn't starve.
2: You start in that Manhattan apartment, and you have 40 pieces of luggage that you leave with. So tell the listeners of those 40 pieces of luggage How much do you have left at the end of your nine-year journey, and what becomes of all the possessions you leave behind in your apartment?
1: Well, they were eventually auctioned off because no money could be sent. I have to back up and tell you that once we got to Japan, that trip was cut short on June 22nd. The reason my parents went that route was because Hitler and Stalin had written the non-aggression Pact, so they felt that was going to be safe. But then Hitler decided to not respect that agreement. And so he just marched into Russia on June 22nd. Now, we arrived in Japan on June 19th. So then the Japanese said, we don't know when we can get you back to America. My father was thrilled because he'd be going back to America. But the Japanese, because Roosevelt had put an embargo on the Japanese because of what they were doing in Indochina and so on. No ships, or very few, were going back to America, and a family of five, it wasn't easy. So at one point, September came along, and my parents put us into school. And then one day on December 8th, we discovered that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. So that sealed our fate. We got stuck there. And that's when the rest of that food (laughs) got eaten up over the next six years in Japan. It came in very handy, as we had very little to eat.
2: And how much was left of it at the end? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Yeah, there's some great passages in the book about what the food does when you're under occupation, or I guess time of war, you would say, in Japan, not occupation. But food becomes scarce there towards the end. And it's an amazing trip. It's amazing that one woman, a girl at the time, survives all of this, or endures all of this, Your parents are very honest with you. You're speaking just now about Hitler breaking the non-aggression pact. And you ask your father, you're seven at this point, and you say, Dad, what would have happened if we'd gone across Russia? And he's completely honest with you. He says, well, probably we'd end up in a camp and we'd all be dead. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Just see. That was nobody wanted to ever be stuck in Siberia
2: <laughs> yeah the railroad maybe I, I think that would have been certainly more boring than the trip you ended up taking your parents so come alive in this story you mentioned peanut butter that your mother lovingly packs these things that were your favorites when you board that train out of New York City and Here's your father, a German immigrant, dreams of coming to America, makes his way in New York at a bank. And you write this small detail where you say he ordered his usual drink a Manhattan. And it just made me smile because I thought such a drink of the time. And also it just shows how much of an American he was. He went native, as they say. He sure did. (laughs) He loved New York city and then to be separated from it as an immigrant, not able to come back. He's dreaming in his early life, goes through world war one. He's dreaming of getting to New York. Then he leaves. He's called back by the home office, stranded. Then he's again, dreaming of getting back again. And this decade of frustrating forced idleness for your father, he has three children to provide for and your mother. So, I thought of all the people we have today whose careers are also on hold during their prime years. People lose their jobs. There's over 94 million now people that are not in the workforce or maybe people that aren't working a fulfilling job. So what do you say that they can learn from your father's example?
1: Well, now my father luckily had a very unusual childhood because not only had he gone through World War I, so he'd already gone through one war and had learned to survive that but then as a young man he studied to become a concert pianist and so of course he had to curtail that when the runaway inflation of 1923 made it impossible for him to try and have a career as a concert pianist when he wasn't even yet developed completely so he had to change his career and become a banker well that actually kept him together because when we were in Japan and he couldn't work, he just sat at the piano for hours and hours and hours studying and planning and playing and playing Chopin polonaises and all sorts of wonderful music, which we grew up with. And I think that helped him. They also played a lot of tennis. And I think they just kept very busy and occupied. And they never sort of felt sorry for themselves. They just said, we got to keep on going, got to keep on keep on trucking, as they say. (laughs) And I think the most important thing is just to know that somehow things will get better, or to be positive about things like that, and then keep on going.
2: I love that part of him. It's the immigrant story of anybody. And I think because of what amounts to just 12 years in the long history of Germany, that we all forget that there were people that were just caught up in this war that had no part of it. And certainly, That describes your father, except for your two brothers. You and your parents are all German citizens, and yet you really are, as the subtitle of Journey Interrupted says, a family without a country. You have no country, nobody to go to. Ordinarily, you would go to the German embassy, but while you're stranded in Japan, the – German embassy is no help to you. In fact, the Nazis are suspicious of your father. Describe that for people who, I think when they hear that German accent or they hear somebody was around during World War II, they forget that there are people opposed to the Nazis.
1: Well, exactly. The thing was that he was told in no uncertain terms that he should move us into German schools, but my father refused that. And we were worried that maybe something would happen. But He had friends in the Japanese banking community, and I remember they sort of stood up for him. But he was considered by the Nazis a politically unreliable. And so we had to be very, very careful that we didn't in any way appear to be stepping out of line. We just had to be extremely cautious. I know friends of ours went photographing the beautiful cherry blossoms in April 1942. It's always beautiful cherry blossoms and suddenly they disappeared. They were French friends. They had been suspected of being spies. That time in Japan, everybody was suspect because nobody knew who was a spy and who was for you and who was against you. It was pretty, pretty scary, pretty tense.
2: You worry about that throughout the war. You describe various incidents like that, where you have friends who are caught up in it quite innocently, and I think if your parents hear they're looking at you, they have children 7, seven, four. Who knows what you might say innocently, and you end up in a newspaper at one point in the book again completely innocent. You're picking flowers. You see Japanese children picking flowers. And what's more natural for a little girl or a little boy than to run off in a field and pick flowers? And yet this could potentially have been a problem because it turns out they are picking them for fallen soldiers who are at war with the nation of your two brothers birth, a nation you want to come back to America. This suspicion and this xenophobia that's in Japan that gets worse as the war advances, you're living in a police state. I have learned this from reading Journey Interrupted, which I suggest everybody do. I sincerely love the book, but how did they educate you about these dangers of any misstep without terrifying you?
1: Well, I guess they always started to say that we don't want to we don't want to alarm you but just be aware that we are in a country that's at war and that basically everybody... I mean, we couldn't even speak to the Japanese without the Japanese running into possible troubles. We had a gardener who said, please don't talk to me because it wouldn't be looked upon very kindly by the Japanese authorities. They did preface it by, we don't want to alarm you, but we want to make you aware that you have to just be very careful and don't get into any fights with any kids and don't say anything that could be construed as against anything or anybody. Just keep your mouth shut.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think because of the German upbringing, and I don't wish to stereotype, but when you read and you see all different people, I'm Greek American, so certainly we have our own ways. I I'm thinking right at this moment that if these were three Greek children, although we're pretty quiet, kids are pretty quiet, but when you get to be, you know, your brothers are turning into teenagers at this point, they're going to say something. You know, it's hard to not speak. It's hard to know what to do. You're already in such a foreign land and you hadn't really even seen America yet at this point. And you're thrust suddenly into being in Japan. That must have been a real challenge. And I wondered if it impacted you later in life. Did you find yourself very reticent to talk to people and share
1: oh you you've got it right on the nose dean because this was something that for years i was never i mean i didn't dare speak up it did impact that's very very prescient of you that's something that i remember for years and years and years being very very careful what i said and not feeling free like in america when you can say just about anything but that was not something that we dared do
2: was most of your life. If you're seven, when you arrive, you, You've only really been thinking and remembering for three or four years, and then you're going to spend nine years in Japan and a defeated Germany. So I imagine that that would have really affected you until you came home, which we'll get to a little bit later, your life back in America. As the war ends, you're there. You're there for the entire run of the war. Things start to turn badly for the Japanese. And despite having been allied with Germany, you're not really looked at as Germans. Again, as the subtitle says, a family in a world at war without a nation, you are in Japan, when the United States drops the two atomic bombs forcing Japanese surrender, had the Allies mounted a land invasion, would you and your family have faced reprisals from the Japanese military police?
1: Well, we heard around August 15th, all white people, so to speak, all Caucasians were to be eliminated. But luckily, the Americans landed in Iwo Jima And the Japanese were afraid that maybe they would have our blood on their hands. And so they sent communiques around and said, stop this. Do not do any killings. So we were very fortunate that the Americans landed because it might have been the end of us.
2: And you have that reticence again when the two nuclear bombs are dropped. You go and... Describe in Journey Interrupted, seeing it on the television. And I imagine your feelings were bubbling over inside because you're a kid. You just want to go home, really. You're in your teens by this point. Describe the feeling when you hear that the war is over.
1: Yes, because we did not see it on television, Dean. There was no television in Japan. We did not see any of the bombs until many, many years later Mm. when the pictures were shown on television.
2: You just knew it was over and you weren't going to be executed as uh, a non-Japanese.
1: Right. And, and the Japanese did have all sorts of propaganda that for 75 years, nothing would grow there and that it was just, it was a wasteland. But we didn't know anything about the bomb until a lot later, until, actually, we didn't know anything about the bomb until the emperor spoke and the Americans came to our little village. The occupation came to our little village and we heard about it that way. You'd have to be very careful. My father did have a radio, but that was like contraband, so he kept that under wraps And furthermore, you could never, A, you couldn't understand most of the stations. And then there was Tokyo Rose was on one of them. But you could never know what the truth was. You just never knew what the real story was.
2: How do you feel now? It's come back in the news with President Obama being the first sitting president to visit Hiroshima.
1: Well, you know, I feel that Hooman did the right thing because we would have lost millions of people versus the amount that died because of the bombs. But I think it was the right thing to do. And how do I feel? I don't know why he chose Memorial Day to go, but, you know, he had his reasons. And uh, at least he didn't apologize.
2: It's hard to get your mind around what I heard once called the least terrible option, And as somebody who would have been literally under the sword, you and your family, had there been a land invasion, it's hard to choose. Sometimes there aren't any good choices. And I think that in today's world, we always expect there to be a happy ending. Maybe we watch too much Hollywood, but there was no great option there available, unfortunately, to end the war. No, there
1: wasn't. There wasn't. I mean, for the Japanese and for the Americans, it was merciful just to lose as many as we lost, rather than two or three times as many.
2: My guest is Hildegard Mahoney, and the book is Journey Interrupted, a family without a country in a world at war. This quote by veteran broadcaster Larry King, quote, Journey Interrupted is a great book. It is a look at a marvelous woman with an incredible life. I've known Hilly Mahoney for many years, but had no idea about this amazing part of her life. You will not want to put it down. Now, today, not only do people tell their friends a lot more than they used to back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, but... They put every moment of their lives on social media. So when I was reading through all the praise in your book from people like Rudy Giuliani, a lot of famous people that you've met over the years, it stood out to me that even somebody who asks as many questions as Larry King, that's his job, he'd not found you opening up about your early life, which maybe goes back to your childhood. What inspired you to tell your really one-of-a-kind story here in the 21st century? instead of way earlier? Why did you keep it quiet for so long?
1: Well, for one, you know, I came back from the war and I immediately went to work. Then I got married and had children and I was very busy. And furthermore, I was too close. It was still too raw. But then in the year 2000, uh, when I lost my husband, he had been such an incredible force and he, he left such a void that I thought people had been telling me for 60 years, Hilly, you've got to write that story because that's a story about World War II that's very not well known. We've all heard about the Pacific, we've heard about the Atlantic, but we've never heard about Westerners living in Japan during the war, and it's an unusual story. And so I actually, I didn't think about writing a book. I went to see David Brown, you know, the producer of Jaws and many movies, because he was a friend, and I said to him, now, David, you know the story, but I see it as a movie. Is there any interest on your part? And he said, oh, I think it'd be a very interesting movie to make. But he said, no screenwriter can write a screenplay out of your head. You've got to write it down. <laughs> so when I said to him, but David, I'm not a writer. He said, well, just sit down and start talking and you'll find your voice. So I said, well, he must know more than I do. So that's how it started. <laughs> <laughs> I.
2: I love speaking of your husband. It's a very married moment that he would prompt you. And in the way was that he would just casually mention, oh, Hilly was in Japan during the war. And of course, people would all, I'm sure, stop and look at you. And that was his way of drawing this story out. And you said so many people reacted that they wanted you to write it down.
1: That's exactly, that's exactly right. And, you know, often by accident, you I see some Japanese people and I, I'll say, ah, I'll speak a little Japanese just to keep the practice going. <laughs> and they're so surprised. <laughs>
2: yeah, you don't look like you'd know Japanese. My mother taught me that when I was younger. She said, you never know who might be Greek. We were in an a and store back in the 70s. And there was a couple, a couple that happened to be African-American. It was a mother and a child. And she told the child something, kind of thing a mother would tell a child, stop passing wind in here. But she did it in Greek. And my, my, my mother my mother said, see, you never know who might be Greek.
1: <laughs> That's so true. Often my mother and father and my, my brothers, if we wanted to say something we didn't want anybody else to understand, we'd say it in Japanese. <laughs> And that was our way of, you know, if we were going to make maybe fun of somebody or something like that. say in
2: Japanese. <laughs> well, I know from the book that you're too nice, your entire family, to ever want to make fun of somebody. So I'm sure. That... Well, I mean, just
1: <laughs> good, 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 good fun.
2: <laughs> right. Now, after the war ends, your journey does not end. You're still not able to return to America. You have to go by way of Germany, the nation of your birth. It's devastated by war. The Americans must mount the Berlin airlift at one point to prevent mass starvation in the capital. I learned a new word in Journey Interrupted, and you're going to have to help me with my pronunciation, but Trümmerfraun?
1: Trümmerfraun, that's very good.
2: No, not bad. That's good.
1: Do you speak a little German?
2: <laughs> no, just Trümmerfraun now, after your
1: book. <laughs> Trümmer is really what you saw after the war. I can't think of the English word now. Destruction, destruction. And these were the women who came to rebuild Germany and would take all the bricks that were still full of cement and then they'd hammer the cement off and then they put them in a clean pile. And that's how the rebuilding of Germany started.
2: Kind of a heartbreaking thing to have a word for. Germany obviously suffering through two world wars and all that destruction. Women like this were not the ones that were starting the fighting. We look at Germany today, and we see an economic powerhouse. We see the driving force behind the EU. Talk about the work they did, because you come, at this point, from Japan. You've grown up in America. Talk about the work and the German ethic that has brought them back from this destruction you witnessed.
1: Well, that's one thing. The Germans do have a very good work ethic, and they're very disciplined. It was amazing to see how everybody banded together after having lost. Of course, the country was split in two, East Germany on the one hand and West Germany on the other. And one was socialistic, communistic on the east, and then the other was capitalistic. They went right to it and started, you know, it's no use sitting around moaning, we better get going. And it was a German miracle happened.
2: And for your part, you come back to Germany, you've been sort of I don't want to say free from the suffering, but you certainly weren't getting bombed in Germany. What do you remember feeling when you go to Germany and you see this destruction?
1: It was very depressing. For my parents, even more so, because they remember it from before the war. And uh, then they all of a sudden saw, I mean, the city of my birth, just the outer walls were standing. Well, it was the firebombs. It was pretty depressing. But you know, children are pretty resilient and what my parents did was see to it that well, at least my younger brother and I, who were still younger, that we went to, got to school so that we would be occupied with continuing our education. My older brother wasn't quite so lucky because he went with my father to Frankfurt and as a, an American and he was, at that point, he was, uh, what was he, in 47, he was 16. So he went right to work as an American civilian. It was quite good because he was in uniform and he was able to go into a PX and buy cigarettes, which at that point, a carton cost a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was like gold on the streets. With coffee and cigarettes, you could buy butter and eggs from the farmers in the village that we lived in. So he went to work with my father in Frankfurt while my younger brother and I went to school. I had been in a convent school all those years, and all of a sudden I was in a mixed, in a co-educational school. That, of course, was very nice, because at that point, one was sort of discovered boys. So, you know, you just forget about the negative, and you go go for the positive. <laughs> and Germany was getting better. They had what they called the Währungsreform, the currency reform of June 20th, 1948. I mean, that was amazing how all of a sudden food was in the stores again, everything was getting better. So we were just going along with everything getting better and not looking back.
2: You said the city of your birth, that's Hamburg, correct? Yes. You mentioned about your brother being an American citizen, able to bring you food. And in the book, you talk about just how you were hungry. People today talk a lot about hunger. And you look back at the war. My mother was a little girl in London at the time. About your age, that's hunger. We expect to go to the store maybe and not find what we want, and then we complain. But to go to a store and find nothing on the shelves is not an experience that most people have here in America, unless there's some kind of disaster. So your brothers are needing to be fed. You're needing to be fed. Your brother who can go into the PX, they're even looking in the food that's been thrown away. And you said that that is another thing that sticks with you from the war. So how do you look today at food? I mean, is it still special to you to be able to go into a store and eat what you want? And how do you feel when you see people throwing away so much food?
1: Oh, it, it kills me. It kills me. Even my children and grandchildren who haven't gone through the war. So how can I expect them to be? It's, it's a sin to, to, to waste food when you think of how many people in the world are starving. For instance, I have my favorite story about throwing things away. Here in America, when you see a banana that gets very ripe and it's overripe, Oh, chuck it out. But I peel the bananas, I freeze them. And then if ever I need a dessert, I put them through the Crescent art and make a nice little banana frozen, like a banana sorbet. And it's wonderful because it has no sugar in it, no cream, no fat. It's pure banana. And so it's a healthy dessert. So before the food got bad, we learned to use it in a way that You know, for instance, you have a chicken. Well, you finish with the chicken for the first day. The next day, you if what's left over, you can make chicken fricassee or, or chicken croquettes or just creamed chicken or whatever. You try never to waste food. You just don't eat it when it gets bad, but you don't let it get bad.
2: You finally get back to New York City. You finally get back to America. But by this point, nine years have gone by. Again, you're seven when you end up stranded in Japan. Tell people a little bit about what they can expect about that part of the book, because this is not just World War II. This is very much a young woman's journey. You come home and you have a different role in the family now. You're not just the little girl anymore. You are trying to help rebuild your family's life. Also, as you said, discovering boys, becoming a woman in your own right. So what is the New York City that you find when you return?
1: I was so surprised and so happy because... First of all, the school that I'd left, my schoolmates, I thought they might have forgotten. But when I called up and said, Oh hi, this is Hildegard Erklins, Hildegard I got the most wonderful <laughs> reception. It was so reassuring because I didn't know here I was German and that Germany had lost the war and I didn't know whether I'd be how I'd be received. But it was very rewarding to find that and very reassuring to find that my friends were still my friends. Then of course we went right to work and started rebuilding our lives. So I would say that we were very lucky.
2: Your parents taught you in part. You mentioned there in passing that wasting food is a sin. You've made your life really with your late husband giving back. You are the chairman of the Harvard Mahoney Neuroscience Institute. And I know that this idea of advancing humanity and doing good works is a passion for you. So tell us a little bit about what you do there. What is 2016 Hilly Mahoney doing?
1: Well, every other year we give a prize, the Mahoney Prize, to someone who has done the most to bring neuroscience to the public and to make them realize that there's so much that can be done, whether they people have manic depression or depression or addiction. There's so much now that can be done to help improve people's lives. And so we give this prize to the person who, for instance, Alan Alder has a wonderful department down at Stony Brook. He's been very involved with neuroscience. So he deserved this prize very much so. So that's one thing the Mahoney Institute does. The other thing is we publish a newsletter, and I'd be delighted to put you on the list if you give me your email address. It's free, it comes out four times a year. It talks all about the latest developments in various diseases, be it Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, stroke, you name it. So we give the prize, we publish the newsletter, and then what we do is we support fellows at Harvard who are studying neuroscience. And so that's the three things that the Institute does.
2: And everybody has a brain, right? Although we might not always think that from watching reality (laughs) TV. I don't mean to be condescending, but it was just too good a joke. But
1: uh, I would say, wouldn't anybody who had a brain be interested in the brain?
2: (laughs) (laughs) And you never know what you're going to need to learn from it. And I will definitely put a link for that at historyauthor.com. And people can go there and sign up and I'll tweet that out and everything. There is really so much in Journey Interrupted that... It's almost unbelievable that it all happened to just one woman. I have been telling people that when I read your book, I said, how am I going to speak to this woman? There's so much in the book. And I finally came up with the idea of, well, just tell people that they have to read it. Cite people like Mayor Giuliani and cite people like Larry King, who have loved it and loved you and enjoyed it so much. I have one final question that has to do with one of the many photographs in the book that I think demonstrates how you come to know you through this book. It's when you're on tour as Miss Rhinegold. you get elected in 1956. People vote, and there's a picture of you. You're riding in a car, a Mr. Schmidt KR20, one of those little sort of almost looks like a clown car. You have the flowers, the crown, and you're waving a gloved hand to the crowd. and you're not just smiling in the picture, you're beaming. And having gotten to know you from when you were a little girl of only seven and all these trials you went through, I was so happy for you. I was just so passionate about it. And yet, even though you've been elected to this position, you're so unselfconscious. It's just a wonderful picture. So describe what you felt and what you would say to that young woman right now if you could speak to her, Miss Rangold, 1956, across all these years?
1: Well, if I were to speak to her, I would congratulate her. (laughs) I would say, lucky you, because it was really a stroke of great luck to have lost everything and then to go out for a prize that I literally entered as a lark because I never thought I'd win And then to find that not only did I win, but with it came a $50,000 prize in 1956. So you can imagine that in today's money, that would move a couple of decimal points. But I would say just congratulations and go to it. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Which I did, I must say. It was a wonderful experience.
2: Well, you got to see America, which your father loved and you loved and wanted to come back to. You were able to really see it as an adult. That sounds like fun.
1: Exactly.
2: Well, Hildegard Mahoney, I am so happy that Regan Arts sent me a copy of Journey Interrupted, a book I might not have picked up otherwise. I'm always glad to get put into my hands. I think the highest compliment a reader can pay after finishing a memoir is I feel as if I know you, I feel as if you might show up for Thanksgiving. Now we cook a lot of Greek food, but maybe this year we'll also have some German food. (laughs) I'm glad that I went along for this ride. I wish you the best of luck and I hope people out there will look into the Harvard Mahoney Neuroscience Institute. You take your brain for granted, maybe until you have a problem with it or until somebody you love has a problem with it.
1: Family goes untouched.
2: Yeah. So Sign up for the newsletter there. Be ready when you're facing these things. See how you can help. And don't waste food, right? It's a sin. (laughs) Thank you so much again for joining me.
1: Oh, Dean, thank you for having me. I really love talking with you.
2: Again, the book is Journey Interrupted, a family without a country in a world at war. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com and we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark the URL of our homepage for all your online purchases. Once again, my thanks to Hildegard Mahoney for joining us. I was really honored that she would come and share her family's inspiring story of their struggle to stay together and stay alive as the world clashed and went to war all around her. Please let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, or facebook.com slash history author. And remember, you can sign up for the Harvard Mahoney Neuroscience Institute's quarterly newsletter, which is going to be some really interesting reading. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, and next Monday's all-new interview. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together...
0: beer is rainbow. The dry beer, think of rainbow whenever you buy beer.
2: It's not bitter, not sweet. Extra dry flavored treat, won't you try extra?